This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Over the weekend, the National Women's Political Caucus convened in St. Louis to give women the chance to network, recruit, train, and provide support for political campaigns. It included sessions on things like how to target specific voters, fundraise, and use social media effectively. Here with me to talk about that conference and what it means with regard to the state of women in politics is St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Jason, tell me a bit first about the National Women's Political Caucus. The National Women's Political Caucus started in the early 1970s, and it was started by noted feminists like Gloria Steinman, Steinem, not Steinman, Steinman is a, a Missouri political figure. Uh, sorry about that. Um, and it, it, it mainly advocates electing women candidates, that, and particularly women candidates that support abortion rights. So if you're a female candidate that opposes abortion rights, this group is not going to be for you. So uh, that's an important thing to mention because that's a particular issue, especially in modern day politics, that tends to split along Democratic and Republican lines. Democrats typically support abortion rights. Republicans uh, usually oppose them. So if you went to this conference, uh, most of the people, if not all of them, were Democrats. Okay. So it's not explicitly a partisan group, but it focuses on that issue of supporting abortion rights, which tends to break down in a partisan manner. Yes. And I think one of the reasons... Uh, it. The, the conference was chosen here before Missouri passed an eight-week uh, eight abortion ban. But one of the reasons why this group decided to stay and have its conference here, even though it was getting some pushback from its members, is the leadership believes that in order to fight against those policies, you have to start training women to run for office. I, I don't think that they have any illusions that one election cycle is going to be enough to repeal all abortion restrictions in Missouri, especially the especially since this has been decades in the making, getting to what happened earlier this year. But you have to start somewhere. And in the view of the of the president, Donna Lent, uh, they need to build a bench because right now it's it's sorely lacking in the mm. state. And so abortion, the abortion rights has obviously been the, the key political issue in this state in recent weeks. Uh, it's a coincidence that the, that this conference happened to be coming here. It was the coincidence in that they had already planned it before uh, the the bill passed, um, and it's it, it kind of remains to be seen about whether like like honing in on that issue or attacking Republicans for pushing for abortion restrictions is going to be successful in the legislative arena. It may be on a statewide arena because many Republican candidates explicitly position themselves as opposing abortion rights as one of their main campaign points, especially in rural and exurban Missouri. They haven't really run away from the fact that they oppose abortion rights. I think the question will be that this particular bill that bans abortion after eight weeks of pregnancy and doesn't include exceptions for rape or incest, maybe that would be too much for even voters that usually support candidates who oppose abortion rights. Mm. That's what a lot of Democrats and, and maybe members of this group are banking on. Yeah. And Jason, I know among the folks you spoke to about this very issue is the Missouri's uh, Republican Party executive director, just about how this legislate, how this abortion ban will affect the 2020 cycle. I did. And in, in a, a couple of weeks ago, I talked with uh, Missouri Republican Party executive director, Gene Evans, about how the abortion ban would affect Missouri politics. She said it is like over a year out in the election cycle, and it's very possible that another issue may take precedence. And as I just mentioned before, um, 
it's not really a sure thing that simply opposing abortion rights will be politically deadly for a candidate. It may actually be a, 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 a selling point for voters in, in certain parts of the state. What I think that Democrats are hoping is the closer you get to the St. Louis and Kansas City central cities uh, in the suburbs, which which are, are still Republican, that's where they're going to be targeting their energy and resources of trying to pick up ground because they feel that this issue may may resonate with suburban female voters. And in decades past, abortion has sometimes been an issue that did transcend party affiliation. Are we seeing a, a, a breakdown of that? Is it, is it really breaking down to a, a fierce partisan issue? Oh, absolutely. I'm from suburban Chicago, and I was re- represented for years in Congress by Republicans that supported abortion rights. Yeah. In fact, Mark Kirk, who was the U.S. Senator before Tammy Duckworth, I, I don't know what his rating was from NARAL Planned Parenthood, but it was probably 90 to 100 percent. So there used to be large pockets of the country that supported abortion rights but voted for Republicans that support abortion rights. That phenomenon in Missouri is long gone. I think the last Republican lawmaker who supported abortion rights was was out of office, I think, in 2006 or 2008 because she termed out of office. And since then, I, I can't recall another legislator who is a Republican that uh, supported abortion rights. I have certainly encountered Democrats that oppose abortion rights, many of which are from rural and exurban areas like Jefferson County. But it, it's far more homogenous from a policy level when it comes to the Republicans. Yeah, another example, uh, former Massachusetts Governor William Weld, who happens to be running on the, uh, in the Republican primary as a bit of a long shot this year, was actually touted back in the early 90s as a potential national candidate because of his support for abortion rights. Uh, much different party now. I think that, yeah, and I think that there are some other examples, maybe New England. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't follow Vermont politics super closely, but I think the, the governor of Vermont may support abortion rights. I'm not 100 percent sure, and he's a, he's a Republican, mm-hmm. but it's very rare to find somebody who's in high elected office or even in congressional office now. But, you know, that's just the way the issue has kind of uh, fractionalized Fractionalized, not fractionalized, I'm sorry, uh, by party. Fractured into factions. And and fractions. Yeah. Well, um, let's... We're going to bring in a, another voice to talk about uh, women in, in politics currently. So let's talk about what's happening right now uh, locally. Um, the St. Louis County Council is on the verge of a milestone. Is that right? They are. Um, for the first time ever, regardless of whether the Republicans or Democrats win in District 1 and District 2, a majority of the county council will be uh, women because uh, especially even in the second district, which I think is going to be a little bit closer from a partisan standpoint, you have Kelly Dunaway running on the Democratic side and Amy Pelker running on the Republican side. And Ritter Heard Days is almost widely expected to win in the first district. I, I actually asked Kelly Dunaway about that milestone uh, a couple days ago, and this is what she had to say about that. And I think it's amazing, not because I'm just pro-woman, because I'm a woman, but because I think our government is better when it is more representative of more voices in our society. And I think for so long, we have had our laws and our policies and our rules made by a single perspective. And I think bringing more voices into the conversation and different viewpoints on the world and the way the world works is only going to benefit more of us moving forward. 
Jason, in your experience and your observation, is our county politics a place where women have had to catch up in terms of getting their voices heard? I, I think I'll, to some extent. They haven't been completely absent from the table. When I started covering county politics in 2011, uh, there were three members of the county council who were women, uh, Kathy Burkett, Hazel Irby, and Colleen Wassinger. Um, so it, it has been a place where they played a supportive role. There still has not been a female countywide official. There's never been a county executive who's a woman, prosecutor, assessor. Um, that's a place where the city of St. Louis is far advanced comparatively, given that the mayor of St. Louis, Lida Cruson, is a woman, and the comptroller, uh, Darling Green, is a woman as well. So the county government has definitely advanced, and I think having four women out of a seven-person council will definitely be a, a milestone. I don't think there's actually anywhere in the state where it's like that. Um, but they still have not reached the the pinnacle when it comes to executive leadership. Yeah. Let's bring another voice into the conversation. I'd like to welcome political analyst Hannah Brandt. She is a PhD candidate in the University of Missouri's Department of Political Science. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, let, let's let's continue from where we here right where we are at the moment. How does Missouri rank when it comes to women in politics, particularly in elected office? Missouri actually ranks um, 34th for women's representation in state legislatures. There's about 24.9% of women in Missouri's uh, General Assembly right now. Historically, uh, when women have run for office in this country, a a whole bunch of new criteria for evaluation seems to spring up, right? We're we're suddenly talking about how they dress, how they look, are they friendly enough? They're asked who is taking care of the kids while she's out campaigning. I don't recall JFK ever being asked who was supposed to be watching the kids when they were crawling around the Oval Office. Uh, Is that something that is changing? You know, we'd certainly hope so with the emergence of more women running for office and, you know, just the image of a female candidate becoming more normalized and so that these questions kind of stop happening because of it. Yeah. Well, the 2018 election did bring about a record number of women in Congress, which means 23.7 percent. There are 106 uh, women of the Democratic Party, 21 Republicans. Do fewer Republican uh, women do fewer Republican women run for office in the first place? Yeah, they they do. It's it's certainly when you're talking about the year of the woman, it's it it was very democratic compared to Republican. Why is that? You know, it might just be kind of like a, a pool or pipeline effect where women historically have leaned towards um, voting for the Democratic Party and identifying with the Democratic Party. So then, as you think of a you know a pool of potential candidates, it's just simply that women lean more Democratic. Hannah, other organizations on the right side of the aisle uh, that are recruiting and training uh, women candidates? Um, I know of the Susan B. Anthony list, um, you know, who, in contrast to the NWPC and EMILY's list, um, their mission is to elect pro-life candidates, um, particularly women. And that's one of the major um, female organizations for conservative women. Mm, but is that is it fair to say that it's much less activity uh, at the grassroots in terms of recruiting Republican women to run for office versus Democratic women? Yeah, and, and they um, they're not raising as much campaign funds for their candidates either in comparison to, you know, Emily's list. Does there tend to be a difference in uh, for female candidates and, and male candidates in terms of fundraising? Do women have a harder time of that? 
just in terms of you know the structures that are in place in terms of uh, you know allocating funds to an, an up and coming candidate. I mean, you know, we find that when women run for office, they do win, and they're just as likely to raise um, the same amount of campaign funds. It's just, you know, the anecdotal evidence of the negative experiences that female candidates have yeah. during the campaign. Yeah. And is is there a perception that whether it's media treatment or or, or what what have you, uh, that women candidates? Do you come under more scrutiny than male candidates? And does that function as a deterrent, do you think? I do think it might function as a deterrent. And, you know, putting the spotlight on not only yourself, but your family um, would certainly serve as a deterrent for some women. Yeah. Jason, do you, do you hear that from, from candidates? Well, one, one particular thing floating around in Missouri politics that irks me in particular is the the double standard you mentioned about women getting asked, can they also take care of their family while running for higher office? Unfortunately, Auditor Nicole Galloway has had to face that because she had a child in office and there was apparently whisperings about, can she still be auditor after giving birth to huh. a, a kid? And I, I make this point knowing that giving birth to a kid is a lot different than myself who is not a woman and, and doesn't go through the act of birth. But that question wasn't asked to Eric Greitens, who, whose wife had a child during the campaign, or Eric Schmidt, who has young children, or Jay Ashcroft, who has young children. And it, it really was a pretty offensive line of questioning to question whether Auditor Galloway could continue in public service when that same question wasn't being asked to male statewide officials. So my hope is that doesn't happen as she ramps up her bid for governor, and the whole discourse is mainly on ideolo- ideology and issues. But that defi- what you mentioned in that line of questioning does happen in Missouri politics, and it's quite unfortunate. Did those questions come up in, in mainstream venues, like debate questions or the pages of the Post-Dispatch, or is this kind of something that's out on the fringes online? I would say it's out on the fringes and maybe through like people, people talking about politics uh, in general. And I, I just think that even that errant talk among political people, you, you need to be careful about questioning some a, a, a female office holder's ability to get into a high leadership position if you're not going to ask the same question to a man. Mm-hmm. Are there questions like that we should be asking men who are running for office? Well, perhaps. I mean, again, I, I'm taking this perspective as a male political reporter, knowing that I have no idea what it's like to be a, a female politician or a female in yeah. general. But I do know that I have two small children, and I take a pretty active role in raising both of them, including potentially leaving this job I love a little bit early to make sure that they get to school on time. Um, I think that may be a question to ask male candidates, but I'm not sure how relevant it is compared to like how they would govern or what their ideology sure, is. Sure. So you have to ask yourself, like, if that's the mentality you're going to take with a, a male candidate, then why wouldn't you take the same mentality with a female candidate? Yeah. Knowing that there certainly are differences between between you know, giving birth to a child and raising a child as, 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 a, as a father. But still, I, I don't think it forfeits your right to, to be in high political office. Sure. Hannah, Hannah, let's talk a little bit about the word electability. Um, does that have a certain tinge to it or, or almost a coded meaning when, when people use that word when they talk about, uh, say, a woman running for president? You know, I think there might be undertones a little bit because when you're 
thinking of electability, you're kind of going off of historical patterns that you've seen. Well, you know, we've never had a female president. So who becomes the image that comes to mind when you're thinking of somebody who's electable is tends to be male. Yeah. And do 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 we tend to do, do media or commenters or voters tend to interpret just what electability means um, in a different way, looking at a male candidate versus versus a woman? You know, I think that might um, vary by the level of office that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I think it's certainly the case for presidential candidates. How so? Well, you you know, you're getting, you know, Amy Klobuchar being compared to Joe Biden and Joe Biden um, right now kind of being perceived as the most electable candidate. Mm-hmm. Well, Hannah, I know that you have looked a lot at how things work on Capitol Hill. And um, to folks who are outside of that system, they may not realize the extent to which uh, the actual text of, of a law f- or a, or the content of a budget really comes down to the staff work that's done, right? The, the people um, who are really writing this legislation and, and working for, for at the elected level. Um, at that level of, of, of staffers on Capitol Hill, is that somewhat of a boys club? Um, as far as the congressional staff, um, you know, there is evidence that female staffers are, um, in my own work, I do find that um, female staffers are more likely to work on women's issues compared, you know, like education and health compared to things like defense or traditional male issues. Um, and if so far as it being a boys club, um, female staffers tend to predominate the, the lower rank Hmm. Um, positions than the, you know, chiefs of staffs and things like that. Do they tend to get the chance to move up that ladder? Do we, do we have pr- prominent um, women who are chiefs of staff uh, on the Hill? Oh, certainly. Um, yeah. But they're, they are underrepresented compared to male chiefs of staff. Underrepresented. And, and, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hannah, are, are there women in politics right now who are making an impact on the way, uh, future candidates down the line will run their campaigns or yeah, then, certainly... or then act as, you know, if, if they are elected, how they'll then proceed from there. Yeah. I certainly think um, that AOC right now is really changing the game with how she um, is conducting herself on Twitter and all of the, you know, things that's going on right now with the squad um, and how women are approached and talked about as, as members of Congress. Are we still seeing are we seeing best practices sort of emerge in terms of how someone running for Congress or newly elected to Congress can use social media to further her agenda? I think it I think it's giving candidates um, the ability to reach people outside of their districts and to really represent um, Americans as a whole rather than just their their, their constituents. Mm-hmm. Now, something we have heard in, in our closing moments is uh, Nancy Pelosi talking about the so-called squad having four votes. Uh, do they really represent f- just four people or, or are people who might not even be in their district uh, part of part of who they're representing? No, there's this um, there's this notion of surrogate representation where a candidate can represent um, not only the constituents in, the, in their district, but also individuals outside of those districts. So, and are they you know, gathering followings from from around the country? Oh, certainly, certainly. Yeah. 
that's actually our time for today. Hannah, Hannah Brand, thank you so much for your time. I want to thank uh, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum, as well. And Hannah, of course, you are at the University of Missouri's Department of Political Science, a PhD candidate there. Um, Jason, Hannah, it's been great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.